This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. This week we're going to consider the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. So if you join me please in Jeremiah chapter 1, we are going to consider this event under the title, Ordained a Prophet, the Call of Jeremiah. (coughs) The Selective Service Act was signed by President Woodrow Wilson on May 18th of 1917. I'm sorry. Uh, this created the Selective Service System, designed to provide the framework for a military draft should one be needed. And though it is deemed very unlikely uh, that this would happen since the last draft ended in 1973, if the decision were made to issue a draft, there could very well be young, man that you, young men that you know called up to report. But even if their names were picked, that wouldn't necessarily mean that they were actually called on for military service. Uh, see, there are certain standards that have to be met. Uh, a young man has to be the right age, can't be too young, can't be too old. Uh, he has to be physically fit, at least to some degree. Uh, has to be free of concerning health issues or illnesses that could get in, in the way of him performing his duties. Uh, he has to have at least a high school level or equivalent education. Uh, must not have a criminal record and can't be a drug user. And he can't be too short or too tall. In short, the United States isn't going to call just anybody to serve in the ranks of the armed forces. It's selective, all right? It's the selective service system. Now, that's referring to it's not picking everyone, but they are going to, at least to some degree, be picky about who's going to serve and who's not. Well, God won't just call anybody either. God is concerned too, uh, not about the same things as the selective service system, Uh, Maybe about the criminal record and the drug use part, but he's concerned about the matters of the heart. Our United States government is particular about who will represent us on the field of battle. And God is particular about who he's going to choose to represent him. So there's much for us to learn as we consider the call of Jeremiah. This is a man who God picked for a very specific and very special purpose. And so we're going to look together. We'll begin with the first three verses of Jeremiah 1. We're going to work our way through this whole chapter over this evening uh, as God comes to Jeremiah and calls him to the ministry. But beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign, It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So in these three verses, Jeremiah sets the context for the whole book. He mentions here, um, and we looked at this last week, he mentions the thirteenth year of Josiah, where his ministry begins. He also mentions the reign of Jehoiakim, And he mentions the reign of Zedekiah, both sons of Josiah, both kings, who I hope at this point you're beginning to become familiar with, as we talked about them last week, and as um, hopefully you were able to do that reading over this week. And we discussed all that last week. We're certainly not going to hash it all out again. But it is interesting to me that Jeremiah really lays out the timeline for his ministry here in the first few verses. Some of the prophets do that and really help us to know their historical context. Some of them don't. But Jeremiah is very specific about that. And so we know here's where his ministry began and here's where his ministry ended. Um, Jeremiah also mentions that he is the son of Hilkiah and that he is one of the priests in Anathoth. Before we move on to verse 4 and consider the actual beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, I want us to consider the significance of those facts. So we're going to start by considering Jeremiah's home. Uh, Jeremiah was from Anathoth. Now, Anathoth was an ancient town 
Uh, it's mentioned in jo- Joshua chapter 21, as the people of Israel come into the promised land, it's mentioned there as one of the cities that's given to the family of Aaron. Uh, they're divvying up the promised land, deciding what parts are going to belong to who. And at that point, Anathoth is one of the cities that's given to Aaron in the priestly line. Um, so it, it was an ancient city. It, was, it existed before the Jews even came and took over from the Canaanites. By the time Jeremiah came along, it had been home for the priestly families for generations. Uh, Anathoth actually is still there. Um, not sure how many of the original buildings are there. It's, it's been, uh, parts of it have been destroyed over the years. Um, but it is now called Anata, and it is only about two and a half miles northeast of Jerusalem. Uh, today, it is, according to an article I read online, a large and somewhat frantic town. But in Jeremiah's uh, time, it was probably a fairly small, quiet village. And it's easy to imagine Jeremiah uh, growing up. He's surrounded by the beauty and peace of nature. He's away from the busyness and the bustle of the capital city of Jerusalem. Uh, just a little, a little outside, but in a much more peaceful setting, um, which, when we look at Jeremiah's personality, that seems to have been much more fitting to his personality than would have been growing up in Jerusalem. So that's Jeremiah's home. What about his family? Well, Jeremiah calls himself the son of Hilkiah. And he says that he was part of a priestly family. So, with those facts in your mind, uh, let me read a verse that we made reference to last week, and one that, if you did the reading assignment, you read over th- this past week. Uh, in 2 Kings 22, Josiah sends Shaphan the scribe to the temple to ensure that the process of refurbishing the temple begins. Uh, It's fallen into disrepair. He wants them to set up a system where the offerings that are coming in are going into beautifying and fixing up the temple. And so the king's command is obeyed by the priests. And then verse 8 brings an interesting and exciting development. Here's 2 Kings 22, verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Now, we talked about this discovery last week, the difference that finding God's word made in Josiah's life and in the, the, the nation of Judah. But did you notice the name of the high priest? All right. Whose son did Jeremiah say he was? All right. So we've got Hilkiah and we've got Hilkiah. And so that raises an interesting question. Was Hilkiah the high priest Jeremiah's dad? Well, Jeremiah would have been about 25 years old when the events of 2 Kings 22 happened. So, from an age perspective, it's very possible. High priest, 25-year-old son. Makes sense. Jeremiah is, by his own admission, from a priestly family. That fits, too. On the other hand, Jeremiah never actually comes out and says that his dad is the high priest, or was the high priest. Uh, which would seem like something you might mention. Um, Also, Jeremiah lived in Anathoth, not in Jerusalem, where you might expect the high priest's family would live. Um, On the other hand, maybe Jeremiah just, he was one among several sons. He wasn't the one who was going to become the high priest, and so maybe he stayed with the rest of the family in Anathoth while his father did the duties in Jerusalem, two and a half miles away. Maybe. Well, arguments could be made either way, and have been. And scripture doesn't give us incontrovertible proof either way. So, I decided to consult my sources and see what they had to say. So, F.B. Meyer says it was maybe the same Hilkiah. John MacArthur says, no, it wasn't. G. Campbell Morgan says it is extremely probable that it was the same Hilkiah. Warren Wiersbe says, it's not likely. Charles Feinberg says, probably not. But he mentions one source, a man named R.K. Harrison, who says, yes, it was the same Hilkiah. So, I guess that gives us a definitive answer, right? (laughs) 
Well, if the high priest Hilkiah was Jeremiah's father, then we know a lot about Jeremiah's lineage. Uh, 1 Chronicles 6 gives us Hilkiah's lineage all the way back to Levi. Also, that would mean that Jeremiah was related to Ezra. Um, not my son, but the, uh, the guy for whom the book of Ezra was named. Uh, he was a priest and scribe who helped lead the first big group back into Jerusalem from Babylon. Uh, and he was the high priest Hilkiah's great-grandson, according to Ezra 7. All interesting connections, if it's the same guy. Uh, it, if Jeremiah's father was a different Hilkiah, then we don't really know anything about Jeremiah's family. And you might be thinking, why do we care? Well, I, I took that time with that for two reasons. First, it is fascinating to consider. Um, it is amazing to think about Jeremiah's own father being the one who found the book of the law. And considering the fact that Jeremiah's knowledge of the scripture that comes through in his prophecy may have been gleaned in large part from the very man who rediscovered the scriptures after decades without it. That would be a powerful testimony for the influence of a godly father on his son and the part that he played in preparing Jeremiah for his ministry. The other reason I took that time um, is to illustrate how we sometimes have to wrestle with these things in Scripture. Uh, I think it is good and right for us to do so, to, to dig for answers, to treat it like a mystery where we look for the clues, we try to put everything together to find out the answer, but even after we wrestle and consider all the available evidence, sometimes there's not enough to be totally sure about a detail like this. And as I've illustrated, careful Bible scholars may land on different sides of it. And it has to come down to us doing our own careful study and doing our best to come to our own spirit-guided conclusions. We need to do our own thinking and not just depend on others to do all the thinking for us. Some people, I think, would say, well, this is the position that John MacArthur takes. And so that's good enough for me. Some people would say, this is what Warren Wiersbe said. And that's good enough for me. And forgive me, but I say shame on you. I am deeply grateful for all these resources. And as you saw last week, and as you'll see again this week, I consulted a lot of resources for this lesson. But we need to be willing to do our own study, and our own thinking, and our own decision making. All right. I'll step off my soapbox now, okay? And I know you're, you're, you're just dying to know what I think. <laughs> well, I personally think that the high priest Hilkiah was likely Jeremiah's father. Um, in that case, it would make sense that God used that episode in the temple in Jeremiah's life. He's just a few minutes, a few minutes. He's just a few years into his prophetic ministry at that point. And that could have been something that God really used to encourage and strengthen him towards the beginning of a long ministry. So that's Hilkiah's family, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah's family. Uh, let's turn our attention now to God's call. God comes and speaks to Jeremiah in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. We often hear these verses referenced as a pro-life argument. And I do agree that they make a powerful argument for the fact that God recognizes that life begins long before a baby is born. Um, but Brother Long is the one who's talking about contemporary theological issues. And so we're going to look at this and, and consider it from Jeremiah's perspective. As God comes to him and speaks these words to him. Um, he's likely a young man of about 20 years old at this point. And God is speaking to this young man and he says, I have sanctified you. Which means that Jeremiah is, in God's eyes, holy. Now this is the word he uses here is a concept that would have been very familiar to Jeremiah as part of a priestly family because this is the same term they would have used 
for things that had been set apart as clean in the temple, or even a term you could have used for the priests themselves as set apart to God's work. And God says, Jeremiah, I have sanctified you. I have made you holy. I have made you set apart for me. God also says he has ordained Jeremiah. He has set him apart to a particular task. He has a position for Jeremiah. But God does not say he has ordained him a priest, which would make sense. Jeremiah is from a priestly family. This is something he knows about. This is something likely a culture in which he, which he understands and which he's comfortable. But God says he has ordained him a prophet. Now, Jeremiah would have definitely been familiar with the concept of a prophet. Um, there were others who were serving as prophets in Jeremiah's time. And I've given you a list of them, a, a list of ones that we know here from Scripture. Um, there was a prophetess named Huldah. Um, she's mentioned in 2 Kings 22. Um, and uh, that's when they, they find the book of the law, and Josiah realizes, oh man, we have been disobeying the law in so many areas. God's wrath is on our nation. What are we going to do? What's going to happen? And they go to Huldah, the prophetess, and say, we found the word of God. We see all that's going on. What's going to happen? And she tells them, God's judgment is surely coming, but Josiah, because your heart was soft to the Lord, he's going to put off the judgment. Um, so she was, she was ministering in some way at this, at this point. Um, incidentally, she was married to a man named Shalom. Jeremiah had an uncle named Shalom, and some people think that they were, that's the same person. Um, and we're not going to spend all the time like we spent on Hilkiah. But another interesting possible connection. Um, so potentially she was the high priest's sister-in-law. Um, but, uh, but she was ministering at this time. Um, and she was, when they needed to hear from God, she's the one they went to. And I know we were like uh, uncomfortable with that idea, you know. There's, does that mean she's a woman preacher? What's going on there? But an interesting an interesting. Uh, detail. Um, you also have Nahum, who may have been a contemporary of Jeremiah. He prophesied sometime before the destruction of Nineveh, which happened in 612 BC. Um, there was the prophet Zephaniah, who was definitely a contemporary of Jeremiah. And we don't know for sure, but under King Josiah, Jeremiah and Zephaniah may have served alongside each other. Uh, Habakkuk possibly prophesied during the reigns of Jehoiakim and or Zedekiah. So he was, he was probably a contemporary of Jeremiah. Um, both Ezekiel and Daniel began their ministries in Babylon as Jeremiah passed off the scene. And Obadiah probably prophesied right around the end of Jeremiah's life after Judah went into captivity. So it's not like all the world is pagan and there's one prophet, okay? This is something that's going on. God is using his servants. This is something that Jeremiah understands. But God's call on Jeremiah fit into God's grand plan in a very special way. And I think that 2 Chronicles 36 shows that to us very clearly. Um, it's talking there about the wicked reign of Zedekiah. And uh, this is, of course, we're, we're kind of coming to the end in 2 Chronicles 36 of the story of Judah and the writer is kind of wrapping it all up together, and he's talking about Zedekiah and how, how Zedekiah uh, rejected the ministry of Jeremiah. He hardened his heart against God. But picking up in verse 14, the Bible says, 2 Chronicles 36, 14, Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem, and the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. So God's people, like we talked about last week, they were running with all their might away from God. They'd turned their back on God. They'd rejected everything that he was, he was doing. But because of God's compassion, he gives them one last chance. There's one last wave of prophets 
And it's interesting because if you look at Israel, the northern kingdom, God did the same thing with them. He sent one last wave of prophets to warn of judgment. And of course, they rejected that message. But as we think about this, this last wave of prophets, we could even say that it seems that Jeremiah served as God's last great voice to the kings, to the priests, and to the people of Judah before Babylon came. God gave them one last chance. And Jeremiah was the embodiment of that one last chance. He was the embodiment of God's compassion saying, I am not going to let you go into judgment unwarned. I'm going to send one last message to say, turn back to me. But think about that from Jeremiah's perspective. What a burden. What a task. What an opportunity. Well, Jeremiah does not respond very favorably to this call. We see that in verse 6. Jeremiah uh, says, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak. For I'm a child. We don't know exactly how old Jeremiah was at this time. Um, but as I've mentioned, he was probably about 20. And he says he cannot speak. Does that sound familiar to you? Anyone else that God went to and they said, I cannot speak? Well, we, we remember Moses, of course. God comes to him and he, he was profoundly aware of his inability to speak. And of course, we know that didn't stop God in Moses' case. It doesn't stop God in Jeremiah's case. But isn't it interesting to you how often God uses those who are reluctant? Think about Gideon, who was so profoundly aware of his lack of courage. You think of Solomon, who was so profoundly aware of his lack of wisdom. Why is it that God uses people who are reluctant? Well, I think the prophet Amos gives us a good insight here. Uh, Amos is, uh, in his ministry, he was prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel under King Jeroboam. So this is going back a few years from Jeremiah. Uh, in Amos chapter 7, the prophet Amos faces off against a fellow named Amaziah. And Amaziah is a priest in Bethel. And in Bethel... Um, the worship of God was being mixed with idolatry. Um, and really, as we look at the history, it all began for the sake of political convenience. Um, and so they're, they're kind of doing some things the right way. They're kind of doing some things their own way. They don't really care about doing, worshiping God the way he's called them to. And so Amaziah is a priest there in Bethel. And Amaziah looks at Amos, and he mockingly tells him to return to his hometown, to leave Bethel to the more distinguished people, like himself, who belong there. Well, Amos has an answer for him. Amos chapter 7, verse 14. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. So Amos admits, I don't look the part. I'm not prepared for this. I'm in inadequate as a prophet. He says, my dad wasn't a prophet. I'm not a prophet. Uh, this isn't something he was groomed for. This isn't something he was equi equipped for. It wasn't part of his upbringing or his training. But he was picked and equipped by God. Amaziah trusted in his own upbringing, his own preparation and grooming. He felt at home in Bethel. He felt like he could do this. He, he, he knew what was expected of him. He knew how to fulfill his duties. Amos, on the other hand, had no one to trust in but God. And that's exactly where God wants his servants to be. Amos says, I'm not, I wasn't the right guy for the job. You come and say, Amos is going to be a prophet, and people are going to laugh. No, Amos, is, he's a herdman. He gathers sycamore fruit, all right? He's not a prophet. Go pick somebody whose dad was a prophet. Go pick somebody who knows what they're doing. A Amos didn't know what he was doing. But that's exactly what God wanted, because God wanted to <laughs> call Amos and empower Amos, and he wanted it to all be about him instead of all about Amos. 
And I believe that that's often why God chooses to use people who, on one level or another, are reluctant because they recognize, I'm not the right guy for the job. I don't have the training. I don't have the skill. I don't have, I, I haven't been prepared for this. Go pick somebody who's better suited to the job. But God wants people who recognize they can't do it, but he can. And that's exactly where Jeremiah is at this point. He says, I'm too young. I'm not good at speaking. I'm not the right guy for the job. Well, what's God's response when we tell him, you picked the wrong guy? Well, he says, you're just who I want. You feel inadequate? Good. That's just where the power of God can shine the brightest. What Jeremiah saw as a liability, God saw as an asset. So God responds to Jeremiah's reluctance by giving him a commission. God doesn't skip a beat as a result of Jeremiah's excuses. He moves right into defining the work that he has for Jeremiah to do. He begins by giving Jeremiah two promises, beginning in verse 7. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child. For thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. So we see here, God gives two promises. First of all, he promises his presence. He's going to reiterate this promise at the end of the chapter, but God promises to go with Jeremiah as he carries out his difficult ministry. And God says that that promise is enough to overcome Jeremiah's fear. God also promises his words. God touches Jeremiah's mouth and says that Jeremiah's words will not be his own, but they'll be God's. And so the one who cannot speak has divine assurance that he will speak the words of God. God says this promise is enough to overcome Jeremiah's youth. So God has, with two promises, overcome all of Jeremiah's excuses. And what promises those are? What incredible truths for Jeremiah to hold on to with assurances like that? There is nothing that could stop him. But do you remember the promises given by Jesus to his followers? Matthew 28, 20, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The promise of God's presence. In Luke 12, verses 11 and 12, he said, And when they bring you onto the synagogues and onto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer, or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in that same hour what ye ought to say. The promise of God's words. So, did Jeremiah have any greater assurances to hold on to than you and I have as followers of Christ? I would argue no. After these promises, God gives Jeremiah his message. And we see that there are two parts to this message. Um, He says, this is verse uh, 10, 9, 10, verse 10. He says, See, I have set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. So we see there are two aspects to what God is going to use Jeremiah's prophetic words to declare. First of all, destruction. Um, He talks about rooting out and pulling down and destroying and throwing down. Uh, Most of Jeremiah's message is spent focusing on this first aspect. And as we'll find as we begin to dive into his preaching next week, Jeremiah spent a lot of time crying out against sin, talking about judgment. Towards the end, he talked a lot about Babylon and and the destruction and the captivity that were coming. So this destruction side of it got a lot of his attention. But there's also a building aspect to Jeremiah's message. I don't know, but... There may have been some, even in his day, who heeded his warnings and turned back to God. But even aside from that, he prophesied about the rebuilding that would one day come to Israel. He did hold out hope of a restored nation one day. 
And I'm not going to spend time on that now. There's a lot of prophecy that goes into that, um, end times prophecy, and we'll spend time on that in a later lesson. But there was a message of hope. There was a message of building along with the message of destruction. Um, now let's take a look at Jeremiah's first visions. Uh, throughout this book, Jeremiah will have visions from God that will inform his messages, letting him know what he needs to say to the people. And before this initial conversation between God and Jeremiah is over, God gives him two visions. Uh, vision number one, verses 11 and 12. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Now we read that and say, A rod of an almond tree. What is that supposed to tell me? All right. I'm, I, I, Pastor Coles knows, but um, what, what am I missing? All right. Well, there are two things here. First, there's an interesting play on words in the original language, all right? And I promise this isn't going to be Hebrew class, okay? But this is an interesting, I, I love plays on words, okay? And I love when God, God uses language like this. Um, but God asks Jeremiah what he sees. And Jeremiah says, I see the branch of, in Hebrew, shaked, an almond tree. Branch of shaked. God says, yes, behold, I will Shakad, or be alert, be ready to perform my word. So there's a play on words. He sees the one, and God says this other, that the words are, are closely linked. But there's another side to this as well. Um, the, second is something, the second aspect is something that's unique about the almond tree. The almond is the first tree to blossom. Um, this is a picture of an almond tree. The people who took the picture said this is a picture of the almond tree in February, in full bloom. It blossoms first. It blossoms most quickly. It's the harbinger of spring. In other words, God is saying the time is coming, and it is coming soon. It's going to be like the almond tree. It will come sooner than you think. The blossom will come out earlier than you would have expected. The judgment is coming, and it's coming soon. Then there's also a second vision. Verse 13, And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come... And they shall set everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem and against all the walls thereof round about and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness who have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. So the picture here is of a boiling pot. It's ready to boil over. And it's facing towards the north. So judgment is coming from the north. Babylon is not named yet. It'll be a little while in Jeremiah's prophecy before Babylon is named as a nation. She hadn't yet risen to the forefront of the world stage. But God makes it clear that his instrument of judgment will come. He's already been preparing Babylon. The pot is already boiling. Now, you may recall that Babylon was not to the north of Judah. It's to the east. So you say, why would it be facing towards the north? Well, if you understand the geography here, this area right here, it's all desert. And so people weren't going to be traveling east to west across that desert um, unless they were very well equipped for that and that was their lifestyle. The, the traveling was going to be going like this. And so that's part of what made Judah so vulnerable because there's a lot of traffic between Egypt and the rest of the, the Middle East area here that's going right through Judah. And so Babylon's at the east, but when they come, they're coming from the north. And so God is saying through Jeremiah, this is, this is what's, what's happening. The judgment is coming. It's going to be a nation coming from the north. Um, God also makes it clear why this judgment is coming and why it's coming swiftly. It's because the people have forsaken God. They've turned to gods of their own making. 
Jeremiah will go on in chapter 2 to bemoan the utter stupidity of such a thing, that they've left God to worship idols of their own making. And he uses the picture of, a, of leaving a, a fresh spring to, to try to carve something out of the rock that's broken and holds dirty water and it won't hold any water at all. But God has given Jeremiah his commission and made it clear what will be the general tenor of his message. So putting yourself in Jeremiah's shoes, what would this all feel like at this moment? It would, it would likely feel like a, a ton of bricks. Like God has taken the burdens of your entire nation and laid them squarely on your shoulders. But God offers Jeremiah just what he needs. In verses 17 through 18, we see God's encouragement. He says, verse 17, Thou therefore gird up thy loins, and arise, and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a defensed city, an iron pillar, and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. God does not encourage us by telling us lies. And I'm grateful for that. Sometimes when people want to encourage us, they tell us what they think we want to hear, even though it's not true. God will never do that. These words hold both realities that would seem like a punch in the stomach to Jeremiah and words that could serve to ironclad his soul. Consider the discouragement of the fact that Jeremiah will stand as one man against kings, against princes, against priests. And remember, that's Jeremiah's own family. And against the people of the land. Like everybody. Again, it seems like you have this whole great nation spread out. And here's Jeremiah. It's one man against the whole nation. Now, we will find, gratefully, that's not true. Jeremiah did have much-needed allies in his ministry. There were others who were serving God in his time. But Jeremiah's great source of strength is in the other words that God gives him. God tells Jeremiah that he will make him to be like a defensed city, an iron pillar, like brazen walls. So you've got stone, you've got iron, and you've got brass. He says in verse 19, And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. Jeremiah is promised resistance. He is, from the very beginning, promised a difficult path. But he is also promised that no matter what his enemies throw his way, he will be able to endure. And Jeremiah finds many enemies along the way. He finds many hardships. He faces great discouragement and great rejection. But through it all, God's presence is enough. And Jeremiah has to learn to lean on God and find him to be the source of strength and encouragement when it truly feels like he is one man against the world. And that is one of the reasons I love this book because we get to see Jeremiah wrestling with these things and running to God in the midst of all the struggles that he faces. But this is Jeremiah's call. In some ways we say he seems perfectly suited for the job. In other ways, he seems like a strange choice. We think you've got a prophet who's going to be the last great voice of warning before judgment falls. And, and we think you'd pick more of the what we imagine Elijah or John the Baptist being like. Someone who is rough and ready, who is bold and boisterous. Though part of me wonders whether those guys were really as much that way as we might imagine. But Jeremiah isn't those things. He's reluctant. He's unsure of himself. But God has prepared and equipped him for the work he has for him to do. Even beginning before he was born. 
And when Jeremiah is leaning with all his strength on God, he is the perfect man for the job. That's really encouraging to me. And uh, just a great example of so many personal lessons that we can, we can glean from Jeremiah's life. Did want to take a moment, if, if you have questions or comments you'd like to share from that material. Yes, ma'am. For more than half of my life, I have leaned on Jeremiah 119. And uh, I don't know why I've never noticed it before, but when I was reading through my Bible this past year, I discovered verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 20, says the same thing, almost exactly word for word. Hmm. And then I noticed there are so many promises in this book that God is with us. And, and like I said, I, I I love that because this isn't just... There are a lot of prophetic books where it's... They're laying out all the messages that they preached, and that's what you're reading. And there's so much good material in there. But Jeremiah, there's so much that's personal, where he's talking about the struggles he's going through. And he's recording his prayers to God. And he's recording the conversations he has with God. And he's recording how he responded when these things happened to him. And, um, and, and God continues to give him these, these promises through, the ministry, through his ministry uh, to, to keep him going, to keep him strengthened. Yes, sir. This is the reason why I uh, chose to come to the class, because uh, I was at Word Life Bible Institute. We learned of uh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And this past couple of weeks, I've been going through a weeping, weeping kind of a stage. Kind of uh, the Sunday pastor preached, and uh, he met me at the altar and prayed with me, you know. <clears throat> it's just been a time of uh, 2022 being a change in this, uh, you know, in my life. Uh, and that's why I'm really interested in what God has for his son Wednesday night here. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> about your uh, the comment about the reluctance. Maybe that's what God is looking for. Uh, you know, if somebody was like, yeah, I'm all for, you know, it'd be almost like maybe they have a little bit of sociopath about them about, or like, some, too much pride. I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, but maybe they need to feel the gravity of the calling, the seriousness of it, you know, how holy God is and his calling. How small that individual may feel that God Himself has picked that person to do this job. Uh, yeah, I think there can be the obviously the wrong kind of reluctance, but um, any time that we start to feel sufficient um, for what we're doing in service to God, um, we're in a really dangerous place. And uh, it's going to start becoming something that's not of the Spirit of God anymore at all. And uh, there's that pride enters in. And, you know, it is interesting because we look at a lot of these people's lives who started out that way. Even Saul, King Saul, he was very reluctant to begin with. They went to crown him king and he's hiding. (laughs) But he started, his attitude changed. He realized at the beginning, I I can't do this. I'm not a king, you know. I I can't handle this. But then... The more time went on, the more he thought, yeah, I've got this. I can be a king. I can, I can manage this. I can handle it. Even you think about King Uzziah. He was such a good king. And then the Bible even tells us his heart was lifted up in pride. And that's when he, he stepped out of God's will. He did something that was contrary to the law of God, that was just foolish and, and was contrary to what God wanted. And, and God struck him with leprosy. And his opportunity to influence the nation for good was gone. Um, and so, you know, not the reluctance that says, I don't want people to laugh at me or I don't, but, but the reluctance that says, I am not sufficient. I cannot handle this. Um, I, I, am, I am not good enough. I, I'm not uh, skilled enough. And that then has to look to God to say, but God, 
and uh, his promises are enough to carry through. Uh, I will draw your attention to the reading for this week. I, I cut your break this week. You only got six chapters this week instead of seven. So you can take a day off. All right. Um, yeah. Or you can, yeah, you can read all six of them on the snow day if you want. Um, and so that'll, get, that'll start to get us into the message that Jeremiah preached. And next week we'll begin to, we'll consider, um, you might say we're only taking one week to consider the preaching of Jeremiah. That seems strange. Um, and that's not entirely true, but I wanted to take just a week to focus on his message. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll look at chapter 7 and several other chapters and look at the way that Jeremiah proclaimed the word of God and the lessons we can learn there. And it's also going to help us begin to, to build the framework of what's going on in Jeremiah's life as he's beginning his ministry under Josiah, then beginning to transition into the reign of the wicked kings that followed Josiah. And so I trust that'll be helpful. Um, I gave you the list of, the, of sources that I consulted this week, and uh, perhaps that can be a help to you as well. All right. Anything else before we're dismissed? You know, Sir? talking about um, two things about the reluctance to, to do what uh, God wanted. You know, we find a similarity to Moses, and you, you brought that out. When you read in Acts 7, 25, right in that frame, when Paul's speaking about, no, that's not Paul, Peter is speaking about uh, Moses. He says he's a man educated in all the wisdom of, of Egypt. And then it goes on to say he's a man mighty in word and deed. A man mighty in word. So you either be that one or two ways. Either one, his uh, profession of being slow of speech and so forth uh, to God was false. Or else he really did have that impediment and God overruled it made him mighty in word. And then uh, the other thing, talking about the kings, you mentioned um, Uzziah. He's not the only king who has that on his report card. Out of the 20 kings of Judah, I only know this because I was doing it for research for a message um, that I preached today. Um, 20 kings of Judah, uh, six of them were stated, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. 14 obviously said that they did. But then even out of those six, um, three of those, as we look at their life, as at their lives, we find that they started doing what was right in the sight of God, and then in their later years, they did that which was evil. And Uzziah fits that characteristic too. And it's, you don't ever see it the other way around. You always see it where they started out humbly, almost as Saul did, and then over time, they became more uh, familiar, more self-confident, less dependent on God. And then that's when they slid off into apostasy or trying to, you know, take the priest's office and, uh, or, or do various things like that or, or, you know, struck with leprosy or struck with, um, you know, or God just killed them, you know. And uh, so it's a good warning to always keep that... Um, lack of confidence in self and full reliance on God. Yeah. Well, and I was even talking to Alan earlier today about Josiah, and I, I think that's exactly what happened with Josiah. At the end there, Pharaoh's coming through, and the Bible even says that God spoke through Pharaoh to Josiah to say, this isn't your battle. Stay out of it. I'm just coming through. Don't worry about this. And Josiah, I really believe it was pride. He said, no, I can handle this. I can handle this old Egyptian army. And he goes to battle. He dies in battle. And the good days in Judah are gone. And it just degenerates from there on. And uh, the, the, the truly sad note in Josiah's life that unfortunately comes at the very end. To contradict you, though, there was a king who started out really bad and then turned around. I think there were two, actually, but King Ahab. It's one of those things we don't, we don't focus on very much. But, I mean... If there was a bad king in Israel and Judah, it was Ahab. But at the end, he, he turned his heart to the Lord. And Manasseh, the same thing happened. Again, if there was ever a wicked king in Judah, it was Manasseh. We talked about that last week. I mean, just horrible. And yet, at the end of his life, 
God changed his heart um, to turn towards the Lord. And I, I think I'm saying right when I say Manasseh. It was one of the kings of Judah that happened. And now I'm afraid I'm misspeaking. But, um, but it's in, it's in, the, uh, it's in the, uh, the Meyer Prophets book. So. <laughs> so you should pick up a copy in the church bookstore. <laughs> Only ten dollars. Makes me wonder if we read through the old this king is good, this king is bad, back and forth like that. Where does Israel stand today? Are they having a good leader? I, uh, I don't think that the same could probably be said that was said for Josiah, that he, um, he followed God with all his heart more than any of the other kings of Judah. I, I, I won't venture to say much more than that, but um, you know, I really think that it's going to be, the, in many ways, the direct intervention of God that's going to change Israel at the end. Um, I don't think they're heading themselves in the right direction by what they're doing. They're trying to bring some things back with traditional tradition and returning to, to certain things, and you hear about that. Um, but as far as actually turning their hearts back to the true God, um, that's going to be something, I believe, that God is going to do through his servants in the end times. Uh, all right, well, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we thank you for this time we've had together. Uh, thank you again for Jeremiah, for his example, for his life. Thank you for the example of a man who understood he was nothing apart from you. And Lord, help us to understand the same. Help us not to be um, obsessed with our own weaknesses, that we're unwilling to serve you. But help us to recognize that we truly are nothing apart from you. Anything good that is in us is because of your work. And uh, help us to learn to depend wholly on you as Jeremiah had to. And help us to recognize that you have a work for us to do. We're not looking for a vision from you. We're not looking for you to speak audibly to us. But you do have a call on our lives. You have something to which you have ordained us. And uh, we ought to be faithful in that. We ought to be seeking you with all our hearts. And we ought to be willing to speak the truth. And uh, help us as we consider that even next week as we focus even more on the, on the sharing of your truth. Uh, help these lessons to not just be more information in the brain, but maybe something that, that uh, challenges our lives, that we take steps towards you and become more and more the servants you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.